to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Welcome to another episode of the Unicorns. This is a podcast series that explores the unique ways that people are shaping our future and leaving a lasting impact on the world. I'm your host, Justin Kelly, and my guest today is Robert Yarsley, co-founder and CEO of ARIA Research. This is a groundbreaking startup that's on the cusp of launching what could be the most significant advancement in assistance for the visually impaired anywhere on the planet in decades. ARIA, which stands for Augmented Reality in Audio, has created a bionic device that empowers the blind and those with low vision to perceive the world through sound. In a nutshell, ARIA turns vision into sound. It opens up a new realm of possibilities for its users. Robert, welcome to the program. G'day, mate. Thanks for having me. Okay, to kick off, can you share with us a little bit about your professional background and the pivotal moments in your journey that led you to co-found ARIA? I'm a bit of a serial tech entrepreneur. I think this is my fifth company. I started my first one when I was 19, so definitely got bitten by the bug. What was that? I thought digital video recording made sense. So I was looking at videotapes that might in- indicate my age a little bit. But I looking at videotapes, I think this should, a hard drive could do this. So I went and built a digital video recorder and uh, I thought, oh, actually, there's probably a market in this. So I went up 19, uh, writing my first patent uh, and uh, developing some software. And that evolved into a company called Blue Box down in Melbourne. And we started that just in the dot-com crash. Nice. Good timing. Great time to actually build cutting its technology. Absolutely stupid idea. But no, the, the idea was brilliant. The timing was terrible. But we did that for probably seven years. And uh, in the process, came up with the concept of tablet computers being media consumption devices, the idea that you could have, this is back at bat in 2003, 2004. So this is before the iPad. You could have like an application that was lifestyle. And we actually, the end point of all this is we wound up pitching it to Apple, uh, which was hilarious. So we were a team of 30 people at the end and we came very close. But, you know, all ended in tears, unfortunately. But lessons learned, I cut my teeth in entrepreneurship and technology and learned so much. As that could be another story, that's another po- podcast entirely, Rob. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been at this a little while, but I really work at the intersection of emergent technology and global scale market opportunity, which is to say, I like building stuff that lots of people would likely use. So, involved with tablet computing, digital video recording, proto Netflix stuff, and then artificial intelligence. And now, since 2000, sort of 11, 12, in the space of biosensors and augmented reality as well, artificial intelligence. So, these things are starting to come together which was my guess about a decade ago, they wouldn't, they are. And so how did you end up in ARIA? Like, where did that idea first come from? Your mates are really important. And my mate, I was living in Silicon Valley at the time. I wanted to do a startup with him. And I was throwing every idea I could think of at the time at him. He's like, nah, that's terrible. I'm not going to do that. I want to do an AR glass company. So actually the device you wear, the hardware, the software, problem with AR back then and the problem with it today is that it's a solution in search of a problem. So my mate Mark, who's now my co-founder, I kept pitching these ideas. Maybe we can make a spatial mapping system of the world, three-dimensional Google Maps or for AR or, you know, 
how about an intelligent assistant that the outside out? He's like, mm, grumble, grumble, grumble. And I kept it in for about two and a half years on this, just hammering away. And I actually built some AR technology. Uh, I came up with a really efficient spatial mapping system. Uh, and I'm like, so I went, did the classic engineers thing. So I'm a bit of an entrepreneur and an engineer, but that. It's a dangerous mix. It's a dangerous mix because you wind up doing the classic engineers thing. You get really interested in a solution. And once again, solution search of a problem. So I built this really efficient spatial AR three-dimensional mapping system intended to fit inside a very lightweight device. And if you know anything about, you know, sort of Microsoft HoloLens or uh, Magic Leap, but they don't last very long. The batteries are really big and big bulky devices. So my thinking was, well, any device that's actually going to succeed is likely to have to solve this form factor thing, which means you're going to get a lot more power efficient. So I built that, built a mapping system, but it wasn't accurate enough to actually drive a pair of AR glasses to make holograms stay in the same spot. So I'm like, well, what do I do with this thing? And I actually sat with it for about six months and I wound up, I'm literally that the, the, you know, that the Newtonian moment, the apple falls on your head. I sit shower one day and I'm brushing my teeth and I'm like, well, who needs a pair of AR glasses but doesn't need the display? Because my mapping system couldn't actually drive a hologram properly because the hologram would drift and the Pokemon look great. What we wound up doing is looking more deeply into this problem and we thought, well, you know, who needs an AR pair of glasses but doesn't need the display? I'm like, well, somebody who doesn't look around so you know special forces and you know military applications like no nah, i'm not really into killing people um and i thought well a variation on the theme how about firefighters in smoky environments so well, that's really niche and then the, about six weeks later the penny dropped it's like ah oh, it's blind people they really need to have spatial perception which is the first half of the problem how do you actually map the space the second half is how do you actually get that information inside someone's brain uh led me very quickly to a gentleman by the name of Daniel Kish out of California. Uh, Daniel's now on the team. He's a great friend. Uh, but Daniel has claimed to fame. They call him the Batman. So he basically uh, had both of his eyes removed by the time he was two years old uh, from cancer. Uh, as a toddler, he learned to echolocate. Uh, he was basically making noises and getting the reflections off these huge big, big bits of furniture around his environment at home. And he built on that skill uh, to the point where he can ride a bike, mountain bike, no problem, safely, with no eyesight. How? That's crazy. I know, I know. I, anyone listening to this, go check check out Daniel Kish on uh, YouTube. There's a great TED Talk uh, that he gives about it. So Daniel sort of demonstrated that, you know, you can you don't need vision to have space safe, high-quality spatial perception. And he'd been part of clinical studies, and they stick him in an FRMI machine, and when you play back his echolocation... It's not the oral centers of the brain that lights up. It's the visual cortex. So he's literally using his brain to see in sound. Um, and, uh, you know, my assumption was, oh, this is going to be like a biological aberration. He's one in a billion. He is. He's probably up in five billion, four or five billion. There's him and a few other people who are credible at this. But it turns out that, you know, this is a teachable skill. He actually taught close to 10,000 people to do this over a decade. So he runs an organization called World Access for the Blind, which teaches blind people to actively and passively echolocate. And this is a huge deal because most of blind experiences come out of the orientation mobility profession where you use a cane and a guide dog and you learn how to get from point A to point B. Yes. Typically, mm-hmm. it's on a route. Okay. It's sort of a chain of events. So I go to the corner and then I turn left and I go straight, then I go across the road. But if you kind of get off that pathway, you kind of get lost. You don't have the full autonomy of sensory most people don't have that capability and they don't typically teach it that way either. So independent travel 
in your under your own discretion is a pretty rare thing. So it's pretty awesome. But he was teaching kind of a different model, which is more exploratory. He's saying, well, right. if you've got the ability to perceive your environment, it's all less dangerous. Okay. So, and you know, if you can do that at will, you don't need to stay on the path. You can pick your own path. And I, this philosophy really appealed to me around the core of what blindness actually is and what it's like to live with. So that choice of agency and autonomy. Yeah. So we went up talking together and we went up working together. That's a lot of power. And ARIA was born. So it stands for Augmented Reality in Audio. Can you explain what that means and perhaps elaborate on exactly how your technology works? Okay, so for the geeks in the room, you probably already get it, but I'll, I'll dive a little bit deeper. So the glasses themselves have some video cameras in them. They have depth cameras, which basically means it can generate a depth map, a little bit like an, basically like a Tesla. Like a normal set of glasses, like reading glasses, sunglasses. You hear the unzipping for the people listening to the podcast. This is a glasses case. <laughs> I could do great visuals chatting. So you can describe it. What do you see? It looks like an ordinary set of, of glasses. Yeah, they're a little bit thicker on the, they're a little bit thicker on the side. That's all you would say. A little bit, little bit wider, a little bit thicker. You wouldn't really know if you're looking straight on. You go, oh, he's just wearing a pair of glasses. There's really three things blind people. We've done hundreds of hours of interviews with blind folks, and they really boils down to three things. They want number one, hey, I'd like some sort of you know sensory equivalent of vision. That'd be really cool. So yeah, that's a given. Like the big obvious bit, I'd like to not exactly see. And that was the other insight. They didn't actually typically want vision restoration. They wanted to make the blind experience more livable um, because it's, some, it's basically your own reality. Like this is something you've lived with, adapted to. Either you've become blind later in life or you're generally blind, but it's part of your identity. You've gone through those hard yards uh, and you've made those adaptations as well, but life could be a bit easier, for Christ's sake. Like it really could. So the first thing is, you know, I would like that spatial perception that, you know, I'm missing. Um, I, I like more information. Second is don't make me look like a freaking cyborg, okay? And the reason why the glasses look like an old pair of glasses, and this version actually has a tortoiseshell in there, you know. Yes, yeah. There's some nice aluminium, yeah. soft-touch plastics and all that kind of stuff. This was an absolute must. So uh, the history of assistive technology for the blind is pretty much littered with failure. Uh, a lot of this has to do with if we if we give them something, if we give these blind folks something, they'll be really grateful and that'll be good enough. It turns out, Damn. no, blind people are just like you and me. If you go look like if you're like an idiot or a cyborg, the answer is clearly no. No, no one's really willing to make that kind of trade off in reality. So you've got to not hit the medical device standard, but you've got to hit the consumer electronic standard, which is way, way, way higher in terms of form, fit, usability, appearance, materials, and stuff. And that means something that's compact, very lightweight, and pretty much invisible uh, to the person looking at it. And that brings us to the third issue and request from blind folks, which is I want to level the social playing field because as a blind person, I'm at a massive social disadvantage in particular because I can't actually hear nonverbal cues. The things mm -hmm. that are communicated between mm -hmm. humans that we typically don't make noises about. I'm nodding, I'm looking, I'm not looking, I'm pointing over there. Thumbs up, yeah, pointing. Thumbs up, yep. hand gestures, all that sort of stuff I'm missing. So, and you know, just even a distance, approaching a group of people. Even walk into the room, I don't walk in to go, hi guys, how are you doing? I do I walk in the room and go, is there anyone in the room? If they're not talking. And immediately there's a disparity in power. I understand. So I want to address that. So they're the three things. Help, help me basically have spatial perception. 
Doesn't make me look like a cyborg and even the social playing field. And that's basically what we've built in ARIA. And so how does it work? How does your technology actually get into the classes and, and help people? Yeah, sure. So there are three cameras uh, in, built into the frame of the glasses. So there's a stereo pair, which like our eyes does depth, perception and distance. Mm-hmm. And there's an RGB camera, okay, which is a typical color video camera in the middle. And what we do is we combine object classification and detection, so classic machine vision, like what is what I'm looking at. Is it a car? Is it a person? Is it a tree? Is it a trash can? Is it a Telstra box that's likely to be edge on and, you know, made out of that perspex that's going to whack you in the face? Terrible idea, those things. And we're talk- no one at Telstra talked to blind people when they built those phone boxes. Thankfully, public phone boxes are going away. They're, they're gone. They're can, gone. Can you bet blind people have been whacked in the face and, you know, been laid out before bleeding? But anyway, so... What that machine vision system does is very efficiently and on the device classify the op- and understand what objects are around you. We then put that into like a video game, a three-dimensional model, and we put the user inside that three-dimensional model and we track their head pose in three dimensions. So basically we track the movement of the head in three-dimensional space and the body in three-dimensional space and all the objects that we've identified in three-dimensional space. And then it's a fairly straightforward way to actually no, sonify the car in that virtual video game, play the sound of a car or the rustling of a trees or the sound of a trash can or a coffee mug and track all those things spatially in three dimensions and feed that as like a game soundscape through binaural speakers, which means basically stereo speakers, uh, in the arms of the glasses back into your ears. And what you wind up with is an immediately intuitive perception of the objects around you and an intuitive ability to interact with it. So if I hear a coffee cup, we know what a coffee cup sounds like. It's like papery and stuff and got a plastic bit on top. Yes. If I hear that, you can do this right now if you want on your desk. If I heard that sound, I could just reach out and kind of know where it is and pick it up. Uh, so Aria does that virtually for everything around Amazing. You. Uh, and you, what you wind up with is an, basically a non-invasive bionic vision analog. Who have you created these glasses for? So this is, to start with, we're doing the hardest first, which is completely blind folks. So that's about 10% of the vision disabled population. And not, not just where, where we're having this conversation in Sydney, but this is clearly a global product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and here's the thing. So... There's about 338 million people living with vision disability globally. And that's not people who need glasses. This is where glasses won't actually work. This is, I can't yeah. see the person on my face and identify who they are. That's vision disability. What was that number? Uh, 338 million. And uh, that's going to coin WHO, that'll be about half a billion people by 2050. So despite better health care and education, it's a growing problem. It's not keep of mm-hmm. aging population. And actually, westernization of diet in uh, emerging economies is a major culprit. Is it? Um, mm. Yeah, Di- diabetic retinopathy. Not like surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a global thing, uh, and uh, solutions to date have either been, you know, I think like implanted bionic eyes. They've been at it for about twenty-three years now, and I think there's been a total of four hundred implants in total. Do they? Do they work? They do to a degree. Sometimes, yes. With some people, scalability and solutions has always been a problem, and the medicalization of how you solve the problem, like. Someone's eyes are broken. A, med- a, a medico's approach is, well, we're going to fix the eyes. It's a broken system. Let's just fix that. So whether it's gene therapy or an implant or something like that, it's fix the eye and you solve the problem. And we looked at 
like the systemic failure in these solutions thus far to actually have an impact on the population scale. We thought, well, taking the medical approach doesn't seem to work. What if we took a you know an experience, user experience perspective? If I'm already blind, I just want the thing to work. At, want my life to be less of a pain in the butt to get through my day, and that seems to have been the trick in actually coming up with a workable solution. So we've actually, often saying this, that we've already eclipsed what you can do with a bionic eye. Uh, with the RE glasses, we're well beyond what a bionic eye would deliver by going, by reframing the problem effectively from a medical problem to a user experience problem. And that's been fascinating. And with it, we've achieved the solution that can actually scale a little bit like the smartphone because there's no implant. Okay, so that means there's no surgery, there's no surgical risk. It's basically smartphone components. We know they don't get more expensive over time, they get a lot cheaper. So there's inherent scalability in the design approach. And because of software, it's just going to get better and better. So that's really exciting. Rob, where are you at in terms of the development of the product and rolling that out and getting people to use the glasses, test the glasses? I mean, do, do they work? I'm sure you've been through a few different versions of the glasses. Give us, give us a sense of the, the progress to date. So I'm not sure if you can see in the background for the, for the viewers. I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, six seven, eight heads. Yep. <laughs> so we just another with a box. There might be more. It's about 15 kilos and goes in a backpack and has a helmet and a whole bunch of wires. And that's just a science experiment. Uh, and where we're at today is so that what I showed you is uh, the next generation coming along. We're not quite here yet. Uh, where we're at is something that's pretty kind of up on right here which is the sensor unit as a discrete thing. So this is where it's at at the moment in terms of uh -huh. what we're trialing. So there's a little sensor package with the cameras and stuff and speakers onto a frame, and that connects to a smartphone. So we've done probably about 400 trials with blind users over the last four years across, I think, six or seven iterations of prototypes. Uh, we're now preparing for our first formal clinical trials in April this year, and that'll be with 20 participants. Tell me about that. How does what's involved in that clinical trial? Medical devices are such easy, wonderful things compared to you know building. It's like the the worst of all possible things to do to yourself as an entrepreneur. A, build something completely new that has been done before. B, do hardware. And I've heard the saying, hardware is really hard, and you know it's not very attractive to investors. And then you add a regulatory burden of medical devices on top. It's the hardest of all possible things to do all at once. Trifecta of doom. Yes. Yeah, it is. Trifecta of doom. Invest now. It's wonderful. And But funnily <laughs> enough, I mean, the realistic thing is this is really hard, but if you pull it off, the impact is huge. Uh, and that's what gets me up in the morning, and that's why we've got, had this incredible team around us. But the point being is that uh, the, the fundamentals of the technology already work. We've proven consistently that they work well. So things like proprioception. So you can stick a naive user, or basically someone hasn't used this before, can pop it on. And typically on the first or second try, our first test is quite funny because we actually did this, uh, you know, the whole thing, never do a live demo. Like you, the, the whole Steve Ball of notes, Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I went up in the situation of the boardroom of the NDIS uh, and this guy was flying down from Newcastle, blind, never met him before. And I'm like, okay, do or die. I had a prototype in my, in my pocket, pulled it out. I said, try I'm this on. The guys at the NDI are like, what does AI mean for people with disability and assistive technology? I'm like, well, here's a device that is all artificial intelligence. Here's the potential impact. And I went, fingers crossed, this works, it doesn't crash and everything. And the guy put it on, he's like, oh, 
oh, there's a glass in front of me. He just reaches out, picks it up, takes a sip. And that, yep. Mm. I'm like, of course it was going to do that. Uh, this was several years ago. Wow. But yeah. I'm like, uh, and then he got up and he's like, oh, I can hear a bunch of chairs around the conference table. And he walked around the conference table and he's completely blind. His name is Kane with him. You're like, oh, there's a door over there. And he wandered off into the offices in Dindy Ice going, Kane, thank you. This is really Unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But point being is that there's sort of an instant effect with proprioception. Uh, wayfinding seems to work well. Uh, object detection classification seems to work well to identify, you know. We've, um, typically, we can do about, I think, about 150 different objects people can identify directly, but they want layers to this stuff. So the trick isn't making a functioning system. Uh, you can do that. We could have done this with text-to-speech going, Apple, 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 glass, glass, glass. And I can tell you, we, we've discovered this pretty early, is that that is a product no one wants because it's annoying as hell. Yeah, and there's cognitive work. Like turn, turning off Siri in the car going, just uh, look, I don't need to know. <laughs> like stop. So the challenge becomes how do you build a philharmonic complementary uh, perception that doesn't confuse with reality but is palatable uh, and you can pay attention to it or not. So an awful lot of our work and intellectual property and effort is in building this perception uh, so it's pleasurable, usable, and has depth that you can either pay attention to or not. And we already have uh, a medium that does this, and that's music. Okay, There's structure, there's cadence, there's layers. Uh, so we take, we riff on the idea of what music gives us and how information and pleasure is structured in that. Because uh, it's not enough to just be functional, you need to bring joy. Uh, and for people who uh, often experience a lot of social isolation, depression, these are the key comorbidities of uh, being blind. This is a huge deal uh, because, you know, it's a classic saying that if you believe you can do a thing or not, you're probably right. Uh, and this is very much the case for people who live with like this massive disability. It can narrow your, your, your world. Uh, it can make you socially isolated. You have the social inequality, even with family members as well. So if we can enable greater autonomy, choice, and social equality, real social equality, um, all these other knock-on effects start to occur. And that's the really, really exciting bit. So it's a lot more than just being able to find my phone or you know pick up a glass. It means that I can do that on my own without assistance, uh, and I can do it whenever I want. That's the big deal. So, so no doubt, Rob, you've looked into the market. You've seen what else is out there, what other companies are working on developing. What what can you tell us about the progress in, in this field? I would like to potentially describe this as something unique. Potentially, no one else has done it, but is that, is that correct? Have, and, and, have you, and have you got patents to try to protect what it is that you have created? We have, we have a bunch of patents, but you, it's true. So people have been toying with the, the potential of this concept since the mid-1990s. The idea that sound and you know artificial intelligence and machine vision could, be, could come together. And the emergence of particularly spatial audio that Apple's driven a lot as in a consumer device in Dolby and some such. And the emergence of augmented reality as a consumer class of device is converging to this. The difference is we started in all earnest about 10 years ago, so a bit ahead of the game. Uh, and also within our, we're not taking a piece of consumer electronics and going, oh, it's near enough, we'll just tweak it a bit and away we go. It turns out the needs of, the fundamental needs of how uh, blind folks interact with technology are quite different from sighted people. 
Having said that, the most uh, uh, prevalent piece of assistive technology for blind people globally is the smartphone. Uh, and yeah, that's that that's a huge huge deal because um, uh, smartphone usage for people who are blind was something like three or four percent in 2010, and now it's something like seventy percent, including emerging markets, which just blows my mind. So, in terms of potential uh, merger competition, yes, we're starting to see a few people get into this, but there's an inherent problem, uh, which is typically where these projects come from. Usually, is a PhD, someone working their PhD. They're like, oh, I'm in doing machine vision or spatial audio and, you know, I need a, a really meaty subject. Like, let's go help blind people. And there's there's a real backlash in the blind community around this because these things pop up once every three months. Oh, we built a robotic guide dog. Oh, we've got a cane with a gyroscope that will lead you around. Or the, the, the technologically, they're really interesting. But what is typically happening is that these researchers, these PhD students and their supervisors has, haven't actually gone and spent time with a blind person to actually ask what their real problem is. Uh, it's the faster horse. They'll create the whole Henry Ford thing. If you ask people what they want, they'll probably tell it's the faster horse. This is not that. So ARIA is really amalgam of co-design and actually working blind for the blind community. Um, so a number of our key staff and engineers are blind. They actually have like, like lived experience because we're no better at this than anyone else doing this stuff. What's different about ARIA is that we've actually acknowledged the problem, which is sighted people have a light dependency and therefore cannot properly experience the thing they try to solve for. I can't. Uh, I cannot uh, direct experience this problem, so I'm going to do a, sh a shitty job at building solutions for it. So what ARIA has built is an error correction mechanism into the DNA of the company. So a blind person is in foot reach to kick us under the table and get things wrong and go, no, you're a bunch of bloody idiots. That's not what we want. No, we, no stop. Stop. Well, that's- And that Rob, is the most let's... valuable thing. Uh, yeah. And yeah, to answer your, um, um, it's a long circuitous answer to your question about competition is we call it the RA difference in that we, for, for all the pain and pleasure it's worth, we are buying for the community we're serving. And you have to be if you have any hope building a good solution. Well, let's. You touched on your team. Let's talk about your your staff and the people who are working with you. I do note that you've brought on Warren Bingham, who's um, a med tech veteran, very well known domestically and internationally. Warren's um, come on as global vice president. Um, who's who's on the team? Tell us about your staff. We're a pretty eclectic bunch. I think we come from seventeen different countries. I mean, the company was really got up and running during the pandemic. Uh, so we started hiring globally. So we've got people who are from Russia, Ukraine, California, Philippines, um, Japan. We're all over the place. But basically, it's been a bit of a self-selection process. We don't really actively recruit, uh, but we've wound up with people like Daniel Kish, who's the world's top expert human echolocator. Uh, he's an incredible force. He's actually coming out here to do his PhD in the next couple of months, which is awesome. California. So he's going to spend a couple of years out here. Uh, Mark Harrison, my co-founder, um, he's like worked with the World Bank, the IMF, um, done some incredible stuff. And, you know, he speaks like seven or eight different languages and lived in Africa and South America and everywhere. So he's he's my uh, person whisperer, so to speak. Like he gets, he turns over the rocks and finds out really what's going on. Uh, he hits up product, uh, which is a bit of an interesting co-founder mix because we've both got a product people. Uh, we've got 
uh, Max Valencia, uh, who's based out of the Philippines, who has who is our machine vision system engineer. Uh, he has no eyesight, uh, and he basically designed the machine vision system. So there's some really, really interesting tool and design challenges going Amazing. on. Amazing. Uh, Ibai Garono, who developed our, our prototypes, he was a Spanish dude based in Japan. Uh, did, we picked him up as he was finishing his PhD in biomedical sciences. Uh, and I just, through the network, we picked up this person. And people like Glenn Dickens, uh, you know, uh, he does a lot of our patent work now and is one of the co inventors and creators of Dolby Atmos and Dolby Headphones. He's based in Sydney, believe it or not. So Glenn works with us. Uh, quite a bit in developing new concepts around spatial audio. Um, so we really have a deep team. Plus, there's a whole academic research team. There's about 50 people working on this project, about 23, 24 of them for University of Sydney at UTS. Uh, so got senior lecturers down to PhD students all plugging away at this thing. Uh, so it's been, yeah, pretty mission-driven. We seem to attract folks who want to do cutting-edge stuff. Well, the big question will be, when can I buy them? When are they available? How, when do they go to market? And you're, you're, what's, what's the answer to that? Well, I don't know. We're still testing. We're, we've got a pretty aggressive timeline. The medical device thing is the spanner in the works because it takes yes, long. Yes, of course. Take. Of course. So we're doing this pilot clinical trial in April. That will inform the timing and structure of our pivotal trial. And you need to do that to get regulatory approval with the TGA or the FDA as a medical device. So we're expecting to do that in 2025. So launch will be sometime. Well, no, it won't be before mid to late 2025, so I'm thinking either late 2025 for our first commercial launch uh, that is likely to be either or both here in Australia and in the United States, uh, which is pretty exciting. So we've got some big partners. We're in discussions with the US. I can't talk about that. Uh, we are currently um, collaborating uh, with the NDIA and the NDIS uh, on some of the projects. Uh, that we're working on, hey. uh, and we're doing some cool stuff too. I mean, we sit on oath this cool, but I'm really geeking out here. We've actually built, uh, and it's about to come online, the HAL, the Human Augmentation Laboratory. I'm a big Stanley Kubrick fan, so we've got a holodeck downstairs in the office. What is the HAL? The HAL is a simulation space so we can improve the technology. So it has 36 motion tracking cameras. It has a state-of-the-art uh, computational surround sound simulation system, so we can computationally, like a video game, in spatial audio uh, that Glenn developed, uh, which is quite incredible. Um, so we can basically programmically like simulate an environment, full lighting control, so either midday or kind of dark and at dusk, and a bunch of IKEA furniture in it, uh, and biosensing uh, stuff like an EEG system to look at cognitive workload, galvanic skin response, heart rate, and all this sort of stuff. So basically, we can create a simulated space, replicate it, put a blind person and other people in that environment, and understand physiologically what's going on, how accurate the system's performing, uh, and run through all these different scenarios that are really hard to create in real life. So basically, what we want up is an objective baseline measure of the environment, the performance of the system, so we can make little changes and actually measure if we're making a, make it better or worse, basically. Uh, and the cool part about this is we only need this. Is, there's nothing like this in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're building this in the right. old UTS law building downstairs. There's a whole bunch of carpenters down there with stinks like glue and everything at the moment. But it's 120 <laughs> square meters. It's pretty big. Um, I'll probably come on of it. in the next couple of months. Yeah, it's really cool. And the, here's the thing. So we got some money from the state government uh, to help build this thing. Uh, and we only need half the time. So we can actually share this state-of-the-art lab no university has this. 
likely. I think Apple has one of these labs. Meta has one of these labs. I think Microsoft has one as well. So it'd be the fourth or fifth facility like this in the world in in Chinatown, basically, in Haymarket. Uh, and we want to share it. So basically, if someone's working on a piece of awesome assistive technology or robotics or Fantastic. something, environmental yeah. test, come on in. Uh, it's cool. So final question to you, Rob. What do your potential customers the blind, the visually impaired, what do they think of the product? Because you've, you've got you've got them on your team, but no doubt they've, like, broadly, what is the industry? Is it like, about time? Thank goodness you're listening to us. There, there's a bit of that, but I'd say the the, the pervasive theme has been scepticism, uh, simply because- Really? Yeah. Someone actually pops up every three or six months and goes, I've got the solution to blindness. I'm like, I've heard this 20 times before, mate. Just uh, just don't follow me because we've been disappointed that many times. So the trajectory of ARIA, where we've actually started to get moving, it took several years to actually build the trust to follow through on what we said we we're going to do to actually properly include uh, the people we want to serve in and on the team, both of advisory and engineering, product design, community engagement capacity. So there's cautious optimism. Uh, and uh, th with the feedback that we're getting and the most recent um, testing of the clinical trial instrument, we probably, I think we've tested half a dozen people late last year, is this is going to be life-changing. Uh, and I'm starting to hear that directly from the participants. Uh, and, you know, you get it, it's like they're going, mm, yeah, it's good. They don't want to hurt your feelings. Like, yeah, it's great. It's good. Just hear that tone like, nah, I've not, not hit the mark. But when they come up and grab you and go, Rob, you're getting it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, it's a, that's, it, it's a great feeling, and we get in that more and more. So uh, they're seeing how this can actually work properly. Uh, they could seeing, they're seeing how it can be applied in their daily living, and that's the key here. So, but the real test is when people take this home and they don't want to give it back. So when I start, you know, say you got to return the device now, it's just a loaner, and they're going, no, 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 just maybe yeah. next week. Then I know um, I've nailed it. We're getting close. We're yeah. getting close. But on the Good. fundamentals, we're Good. there. But in terms of a refined product, we're a little bit way to go. Rob, I could talk to you for hours. It's uh, been fantastic to catch up with you today. Rob Yarsley, the co-founder and CEO of Aria Research. Best of luck for 2024 and the years in front of you. And we will be tracking your success with much interest. So knock them dead and, and good luck. Thanks, mate. Much appreciated.